Our text this morning is found in Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 33. It can be found on page 815 in the Bibles in the pews. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33. This is Jesus speaking. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. Let us ask the Lord's blessing upon his word as we seek to understand it. Father God, we thank you for this this word that your, your son has spoken to us, reminding us that we have nothing to fear. And I pray that by your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that you would instill in us confidence, fearlessness, as we continue to live out our lives as your faithful disciples. Be with me. May my words be truthful. May they be uh, honest. May you be glorified in them. And may your people be renewed and refreshed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What are you afraid of? It has been said, probably in some silly horror movie, that everyone is afraid of something. Now, I'm not talking about those rational and sometimes irrational fears that we all have. Our passage this morning is not that concerned with our fear of heights, our fear of spiders, sharks, public speaking, the list goes on. More specifically, what fears do you and I have about living as disciples of Jesus Christ? What are we afraid of having to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ? I bet many of us would repeat some of the things that we heard just last week in verses 16 through 25. Arrests and beatings. We hear stories of our brothers and sisters facing such things in other parts of the world. And honestly, we pray that we never have to face them. Public witness. Many of us aren't comfortable public speaking at all, let alone when our livelihood may be on the line. Rejection. We want to belong, especially with our families and our friends. The thought of relationships suffering because of Jesus Christ is rather scary. Hatred. Let's be honest, we want people to like us, to have nice things to say about us. We do not typically enjoy being the outcasts. Death. This one seems obvious. We enjoy life. We are not in a rush to die or to experience its pain. Falling away. Frankly, some of us, we may be completely, not be completely convinced that we could withstand some of the things that others have withstood. The threats seem a little too much for us to handle. Loneliness, social pressure, threats to our livelihood, difficulty in general. There are certainly things missing from this list. It is far from exhaustive. But the truth is that there are plenty of aspects when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ that would instill fear in our hearts. 
Some days this fear is enough to even rattle our bones. But thankfully, Jesus provides us with these words we just read in Matthew chapter 26, chapter 10. And he calls his disciples out of this fear. And in fact, he commands us, do not fear. A disciple of Jesus Christ is not fearful, but confident. Now, such confidence is not found within. Jesus could care less about fostering the disciples' sense of self-confidence. It's not what he's aiming to do here. In the face of these things, self-confidence is pretty much useless. It will not help. It is a foundation of sinking sand. No, a disciple's confidence flows from Jesus Christ himself, from his promises, from his purpose, from his person. He alone is able to drive out these natural fears that we would have of being disciples of his. He gives us exactly what we need to be confident and fearless followers of Jesus Christ. As disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, do not fear anything this world throws at you. Again, do not fear anything this world throws at you. Now, it should go on without saying that fearless does not mean foolish. Jesus' words still flow from his call in verse 16, where he tells us to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. We should certainly expect hostility from the world. We should remain faithful in it with all wisdom and integrity, as we looked at last week. But when our faithfulness inevitably leads to trouble, we should and can certainly be confident and fearless. The question is why? Why should a disciple have no fear? Why can we be confident in the face of hostility, of ridicule, and possibly even death? I believe Jesus gives us four reasons. They're listed in your bulletin. The first is that the truth continues. The second reason that we, can, we should not fear is that man is constrained. Third is that our Father cares. And then finally, Jesus himself is our confidence. These are enough to drive out any fear that we would have as being confident disciples of Jesus Christ. First, we begin with fear not, the truth continues. Or simply, as we fulfill our task of bearing witness to Christ, the truth will inevitably do its work. And what work is that? On the one hand, Jesus says it will continue to expose sin. Listen to what he says at the beginning of verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is, hidden, is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. The other two gospel accounts of Mark and Luke can help add our understanding of Jesus' words in this verse. Mark 4 records Jesus saying them in the context of speaking in parables, whereas Luke 12 does the same in the context of warning about the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Jesus' parables would eventually shine like a light on the like a lamp on a stand. The message would prove true whether or not it was entirely understood at the moment it was given. Likewise, the Pharisees would be exposed in light of Jesus' words, his teachings, ultimately his death and his resurrection. They would be seen as frauds, false shepherds of God's people. The truth's work of exposing sin then would carry on through the disciples. And it would do so according to the power and the work of the Holy Spirit within. In John 16, Jesus promises this very fact when he says the Spirit would come. He would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Even in the face of persecution and hostility... 
the truth would continue to go forward. The truth would continue to expose the sin. The outcome of the individual scenario would not ultimately matter. When the disciples walked away from the threats, from the hostility, the hidden and covered things were being brought to the light of the truth as it was being proclaimed. Even if they marched to their death, the light was being, the, the light was being revealed. The darkness was being exposed. And it would ultimately prove true on the final day when all would be exposed under the light of the returning king. When Peter declares all the works of earth and heaven that are done on it will be exposed. Our faithfulness to Christ will expose the sinfulness of this world. It is inevitable. But we can take courage. It doesn't matter how it is received. The truth is working in and through the people who are hearing it. We can take courage. We need not fear. But it's not only that the truth exposes, it also continues to be proclaimed. Jesus says in verse 27, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus here is acknowledging there's a shift that is underway from his ministry to the ministry of his disciples. His ministry was not always public. In fact, it was often private. He spoke in parables for the purpose of preventing people from hearing, understanding, and, prevent, and repenting. He frequently pulled the disciples aside for private instruction and teaching. He commanded demons to remain silent when they were cast out. He even told those people who he healed to keep it quiet. Because he was on a mission to fulfill the Father's perfect plan, which led to the cross. And this required certain levels of privacy and of secrecy. The disciples, on the other hand, us today, we need not such, have such restraint. The time for whispers and parables is over. Now is the time for bold proclamation. It is similar to both times that Bethy and I were expecting. We kept things secret and private until that 20-week ultrasound, where we had an image to pair with the growing belly. It provided all the, the reason to boldly proclaim that we are, in fact, expecting. With Christ risen and ascended, the secret is now out of the bag. And again, the Holy Spirit would be critical in this proclamation. Jesus, again, later on in John 16, would say, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Bold proclamation is the Spirit's job. It is why the Father has poured him out upon his people. And the proof is in the pudding. Alongside stories of certain persecution and martyrdom, the history of the church is equally filled with stories of bold, triumphant, confident, and fearless proclamation. One example would be Polycarp, who tradition holds to be a disciple of the Apostle John. And on the day when he was burned at the stake, he declared in the face of the very people executing him, How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season. And after a little while it is quenched. But you ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that it prepared for the wicked. May we be faithful in proclaiming the truth, regardless of how it is received. May we not fear the consequences whether they're ridicule, slander, 
pressure, persecution, or even worse. Because as disciples, we are faithfully called to declare the truth that Christ has revealed to us by his spirit in his word. Let this then renew us as individuals and a church, as a church to faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we fear not because the truth is continued, but we are also called to fear not because man is constrained. Simply, man is limited in the harm that he can cause the people of God. Governments, rulers, and authorities, they may seem to be all-powerful. They may appear to have everything at their disposal, and they may appear to be unleashing it on the people of God. And it is hard not to think this is the case when we read reports from other countries. But Jesus says this is simply not true. Listen to what he says in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The only thing that the enemies of Jesus Christ can do to his disciples is kill them. Now admittedly, this does sound a little bit like that's a big deal. This doesn't sound like it's that much comfort. Okay, they can kill me. Swallow hard. Because death certainly brings a lot of negatives, particularly if it plays out violently and with hostility. Personally, I would rather die in my sleep at peace. (laughs) Can we get some amens on that one? Human beings, we fear death. It seems final. It seems conclusive. But Jesus tells his his disciples, maybe we should think a little bit differently. Because man in all his power, in all his authority, in all his threats can do no harm to your soul. His realm is the body. It is purely physical. And in that sense, physical death is not final. It is not conclusive. We can look to an example like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 of how this idea that man is constrained can give such power and fearlessness in the face of death. This is what the, gospel, uh, the, the book of Acts records. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen saw at the moment of his death where his death would lead, an ushering into the very presence of his Lord and his Savior. He had nothing to fear, even as the insults and the stones of varying sizes were hurled at him. He was as secure as he could possibly ever be. We have that same security. We need not fear as Stephen did. Whether the people in front of us have power or influence over us or not, God has put a limit on what they can do to us, his people. But it's not only that man is constrained in his power, man is also constrained in his position. While man may think he is judge, only God is judge. He alone is the one before whom all must give an account. He alone is the only one truly worthy of being feared. Jesus says later on, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Apostle James says something similar in James chapter 4, where he says there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Therefore, if properly understood, those who persecute, ridicule, and kill should be the ones in fear, not those who are being persecuted, ridiculed, 
Whatever verdict or decision these men make is temporary. It pertains to the here and now. Whatever verdict the judge of all creation makes is final. It pertains to body and soul for all of eternity. Jesus holds nothing back. Hell is real. It is where body and soul will be united for eternity in judgment. Just as we can bank on the salvation that God offers, we can equally bank on his damnation. It is certain. He alone has such power and authority. We heard Polycarp, when I read it earlier, make that similar confession before his accusers. He was essentially saying, repent now of the fire that is awaiting you, because the fire that's about to touch me is temporary. And this understanding is what should lead us to a true and genuine fear, a genuine reverence for the triune God in all of his majesty. For as the prophet Isaiah was told in the face of the persecution he would face from the people of God, he was told, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Simply put, the fear of God trumps any and all other fears we may have. If the fear of the Lord is, as Proverbs declared, the beginning of wisdom, then it removes the fear of man and all of his schemes. The fear of the Lord recognizes that he is the judge who will bring true justice upon all sin. The fear of God rests in the reality that he will defend and uphold his people now and on that day, that final day. The fear of the Lord trusts in his perfect plan that he is bringing all things to their appointed end and that he is good. As human beings, it is natural for us to fear men. Because according to our finite and our limited minds, the authorities, rulers, and powers of this earth seem to hold all the power. But such fear is seriously misplaced. It will lead us to cower. It will lead us to be quiet. It will make us fearful disciples lacking in confidence. So may our fear not be fixed on these finite constrained men, but on the proper object, the one who is not limited, the one who is not constrained. May our fear be fixed on the one who has infinite power and might, the one who alone is the true God and judge of all men. It is him alone that we should fear. Jesus tells us to fear not because the truth will continue, because man is constrained. And third, he tells us that our Father cares. God is not only judge, he is also sovereign and loving father. He's not cold, he's not callous, he is not indifferent to the sufferings of his people. We see first that he is sovereign over the small and even the seemingly insignificant. Jesus makes this point by analogy. He says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. As one theologian puts it, the language of sparrows and pennies reveals that God controls even the most minute details of life. Back then, sparrows could be seen everywhere. I'm not sure about Arkansas birds, but they're seen everywhere in Pennsylvania too. They were common birds that often made their nests near homes and dwelling places. 
Sparrows were small. They were easy to ignore and to forget about altogether, unless you couldn't afford a larger source of protein. In those days, the poor, if they could afford it, would eat sparrows. It would have been far removed from a feast, but certainly enough to scrape by. And as Jesus says, they're cheap. Two of them could be worth a penny, or one-sixteenth of a day's wage. Sparrows were easily replaced, insignificant to almost everyone and anyone. And yet, they do not stand outside the watchful and caring eye of their creator. He knows when one is caught. He knows when one is injured. He knows when one or two are sold for a penny. Their insignificance does not matter to God. He still provides for them, as Jesus declared earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Where we used to live in Pennsylvania, the large shed out back played a host to what seemed like an entire community of sparrows. Morning, noon, and night, these birds could be seen out and about. I'd like to think they kept the mosquito population somewhat under control, not totally convinced. One time, we intentionally caught one in our garden net. I had to work to untangle it. It's a lot of work before I had to dispose of it. Spoiler alert, the poor guy didn't survive. But once I did, that entire bird sat in the palm of my hand. Now, my hands are a little bit larger for my five foot seven size, but they are still relatively small. Yet this bird felt like nothing in the palm of my hand. Imagine a sparrow in the proverbial hand of God. And yet the Father knows and controls even something as insignificant as this bird getting caught in my garden net. So if God knows details such as these, would he also not know intimately the sufferings of his people? Your sufferings in being faithful to him as his disciple. This is a deeply encouraging thing. God is certainly without a doubt sovereign over all the big stuff. The rise and the fall of nations, the trajectory of history, the category five storm that is swirling off the coast of Florida. But he is also sovereignly in control of all the little stuff. All the stuff that in the grand scheme of things seems small and insignificant. He knows the name calling that his people face. He knows the pressure that they're under. Whether it's verbal, financial, or social. He knows the violence and the hostility that she is suffering and has been suffering since Christ went to heaven. It is not ignored by the Father, it is seen and it is known. And as Jesus promised earlier, it will be avenged and it will be made right. But God not only knows, he also cares for his children intimately. Jesus says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more valuable, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, I've never tried counting the hairs on my head. But while bathing Ellie yesterday, I realized just how impossible of a task that would be. Because tucked under all those long hairs that we see are many more short, tiny ones that miss my, my gaze day in and day out. And despite my deep love for her, this is simply one level of intimacy that my love for her simply cannot reach. But not so with our Father who is in heaven. Just as he knows the details about the insignificant sparrows, he knows the insignificant details about you and me.
like how many hairs we have on our head. He loves his children. If you are in Christ, you are of greater value than those sparrows to your heavenly father. He's not sitting idly by while his children suffer. He knows it. He sees it. He cares for it. And as the God of all comfort, he is able to bring comfort. He will ultimately do something about it as judge. It likely will not fit into our timing and into our plan. But when Christ returns to judge, we can be assured it will all be proven worth it. All will be made right. We will be vindicated as Christ puts an end to all suffering with the authority given him by his Father. We need to be patient. And may we trust deeply in the loving care of our Heavenly Father. And lastly, Jesus tells us we can not be afraid because Christ himself is our confidence. Holding fast to Jesus is all that matters. These words at the very end in verses 32 and 33 serve as both the reason for us not to fear and also a call for us to be faithful. We will see later on at the end of the month in the remaining verses of chapter 10, there are only two possible outcomes for all of humanity. Acknowledge or deny Jesus Christ. Whether it is an explicit denial or simple indifference, the consequences are severe. All of life ultimately comes down to this question. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Confess or deny? Now some may argue this is unfair. Who is Jesus that everything should hinge upon him? Who is he that such a confession is necessary? What about all those other religions that seem to share a similar goal to get to God? What about all those other religions that seem genuine, to seem to care for other people? Well, for one, we see that Jesus alone stands in a position that no one else stands in, before the Father who is in heaven. He says, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, or I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Unlike you and I, Jesus does not stand before any human counsel or any authority. He did that once already in submission to the Father's will. Jesus stands in the throne room of heaven before the creator and sustainer of the universe. And it is by, not by the blood of any animal that he enters, but as Hebrew tells us, it is by his own perfect blood shed on the cross. He is the only one who can stand before the Father pleading his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness on behalf of his people. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A disciple, a true disciple confessing Jesus has nothing to fear because he or she rests on the solid and finished work of the perfect Lamb of God. Our mediator is before the who is before the Father is none other than the Son of God. He alone stands in the place that we cannot get to. He alone stands in the place that we are not, we are not worthy of standing in. But it isn't that Jesus simply stands before the Father. He boldly confesses before the Father those who belong to him. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
The Apostle John records Jesus saying the same thing with a slight twist to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. He tells this church, the one who conquers, or the one who endures, the one who perseveres, the one who in the face of persecution confesses Jesus Christ, he will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. If your faith and your trust are in Jesus Christ, he has and will continue to confess your name in the throne room of heaven. It will echo in the halls of heaven for all the heavenly host to hear. And if this is true, how could this not instill in us a fearless confidence? If Jesus is willing to confess your name before his Father, how can we not be willing to confess his name before finite, weak men? How could we remain silent when others ask us for the hope that we have? How could we keep his name off our lips in moments of great ease and unimaginable hardship? Jesus' command in these verses is not about earning something from him. It is simply confirming a promise. Those who faithfully endure in confessing his name will find Christ doing the same for them before the Father. Those who abandon or deny Christ will not. There is no fence, there's no middle ground. The confidence we can have as believers can come only in knowing that we belong to Jesus and that he belongs to us. Any other confidence will fail. It will leave us without hope when everything matters most. And the testimony of the church throughout the centuries is that confessing Jesus Christ before man is certainly a confession worth dying for. Thousands have endured unspeakable suffering, confessing Christ with all boldness and confidence. And they have found his words faithful and true to the very end. Jesus is the confident confession of his disciples. So as we come this morning, the question is, are we confident disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are you fearful? Jesus clearly teaches us that life in service to him would not be easy. It would be, as Tim suggested during his study in Philippians, an akin, akin to a walk in Jurassic Park. Fear, then, would seemingly be the natural response. If you've seen the movie, it seems everyone's afraid. It would make perfect sense. But just as clearly as Jesus taught us to expect it, he equally teaches us clearly not to be afraid. We can have confidence. Not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not even in our ability to be faithful. The confidence we need to stave off fear can only come from Jesus Christ himself. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We can be confident disciples faithfully bearing the name of Christ in this dark world. And we should be confident. As disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, do not fear anything this world throws at you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these encouraging words. Because we admit this morning that we are a fearful people. It is very easy for us to look at the world around us and to become afraid. To think what might happen if. 
But God, you have told us that we have no need to fear. We can be confident. Because the ifs do not matter. Because you are sovereign. Because you are judge. Because Christ is our confidence. Because the truth will continue. May this give us boldness. May this give us confidence. May it lead us to be fearless disciples. Continuing to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Until the day you take us home, whether in peace or in hostility, or the day that Jesus Christ returns. And we pray that, Jesus, you would come quickly. We pray this in his name. Amen.